So, yeah, um, thank you very much for the opportunity to say something, and uh, thank you to John for the excellent paper and uh, reminding us that, uh, well, or pointing out really that war studies and peace studies often don't talk to each other, and also that interesting gender bias. Um, I tended to think that I at least if you're a man, uh, you can tell if you're war studies or peace studies. If you're wearing a tie, you're probably war studies. <laughs> um, but it, I'm actually not wearing a tie, and I am, I think, probably more war studies. Roger, <laughs> peace studies, another theory uh, bites the dust, anyway. Um, but uh, I did once write an article called War and Peace, What's the Difference? And uh, you may think that if you have a professor at LSE who can't tell the difference between war and peace, we're, we're in a lot of trouble. But I'm going to try and explain... Uh, how am I doing? Yes, thank you. Um, for, uh, a bit more about uh, sort of my approach, I suppose. Uh, what are the aims in a war? This is something that I often think about. Um, winning is one, and I think that's the one that we tend to assume war is all about. Uh, economic aims, this has become more prominent. Uh, you may know Paul Collier's work, I think maybe uh, the emphasis on rebel greed sort of perhaps lets a lot of people off the hook uh, in terms of the greed within a counterinsurgency. But nevertheless, um, you know, highlighting that economic issue, political control and suppressing dissent. I think this is an important one that's often uh, neglected. And then a range of psychological aims, uh, which I'll just come back to briefly. Um, so... This is a, an attempt to uh, sort of express w one model for looking at war where the aim is basically to win. I'd say this is a fairly conventional model. If there are abuses uh, and, for example, attacks on civilians uh, as, part of a, as part of a war, these are often interpreted as a part of that overall strategy of an attempt to win. And then another way of looking at war is that you consider perhaps that the abuses and the exploitation are part of the fundamental goal in a war um, and the means to that end, in a sense, are war and perhaps the continuation of war as something that provides cover for a range of uh, abuses and suppression of dissent and economic exploitation and perhaps psychologically rewarding violence that people, in a sense, wish to uh, wish to perform. Um, so, what are the implications of these two models for peace? Well, uh, it's uh, um, a big, big topic. Um, I think if we imagine that winning is the paramount aim in a war, then, in a sense, a war ending is going to see a sort of a radically 
new world in which that endeavor that been, had been, as it were, obsessing a lot of key parties becomes, in a sense, irrelevant or largely irrelevant, and people get uh, people move on, in a sense, to different priorities. So the idea of war and peace is very much opposite. War is very violent, peace is very peaceful, and so on. But if we look at these other aims, th which I think are often prominent in a war, the economic, the political, the psychological, uh, we tend to get more continuity, in a way, between uh, wartime and uh, peacetime. Um, and for example, if a war ends, or at least is declared over, which is not quite the same thing, um, those who've profited from war are likely to try to continue to make money and perhaps to use a threat of violence to make money. And if you look at Alex Duval's work on the political marketplace, you know, it's about that continuous bargaining in a sense of loyalty for resources that goes on into peacetime and the threat of resumption of a war affecting that continuing bargain, in a sense. Um, it may be that um, those who've profited from war have an interest in finding some new source of danger at the end of a war, uh, for example, terrorism or drugs or crime uh, and so on, that they can perhaps ostentatiously or profitably oppose. Um, and I think we saw this, in a sense, at the end of the Cold War on a grand scale. Um, people who've reinforced their control in wartime may be looking to maintain that situation and peace. And if you've used war, in a sense, to suppress dissent, you know, which I think is a huge phenomenon around the world, and that idea that people you don't like are sympathizers with rebels or sympathizers with terrorists is something that keeps coming up again and again. If you've used war to suppress dissent, then the ending of a war is going to create a problem for you, and you may need some other kind of threat or some other kind of enemy uh, in order to perpetuate that, if you like, that state of emergency. And we saw it in Sri Lanka, for example, when the war ended uh, in 2009 you had these different kinds of states of emergency that allowed, under Rajapaksa, suppression of a lot of dissent and a kind of a widening of the definition of the enemy from the Tamil Tigers to the Tamils as a whole, to foreign aid workers, to lawyers, human rights workers, and so on. And I think, in a sense, the enemy widened possibly so far under conditions of peace that eventually the majority of the country had been defined by Rajapaksa as the enemy, and they promptly, or not so promptly, voted him out of power, which was a, uh, a good thing. So these games are not necessarily infinite, but they are something that I think we have to, uh, we have to understand. Now, if war is this sort of, uh, in a way, very exploitative uh, phenomenon, and people are using war as a cover, for uh, exploitative actions, then it may be that any peace process that's going to have a degree of success is going to be inherently corrupt and, in a sense, inherently violent. Because how are you going to persuade people with access to the means of violence to cooperate in a peace process unless, in some sense, you offer them a reward, and part of that reward may be some degree of legal impunity 
for their cooperation in a peace process. Uh, that's a pretty ugly vision of peace, um, and I think where civil society is not intimately involved, you do get these kind of corrupt uh, pacts which need to be questioned, not least because they contain the seeds for future wars. But nevertheless, if you go the other way and you want to have a really pure peace that's all about punishing people for human rights abuses and not rewarding economically people who've profited from war and so on, you may find that peace is impossible in the first place. So that idea of peace as a kind of institutionalization of corruption and even violence, I think, is, uh, is an important one to look at. Um, one of the things that I think often happens in a war is uh, you get um, attacks on civilians which actually predictably radicalize them and predictably attract support for the enemy. And in a way, it doesn't make much sense if you assume that the primary goal in war is winning. So we saw this, for example, in Sudan, even back in the 80s, you know, attacks on Dinka groups, previously relatively unaligned with the rebel SPLA, radicalizing them, attracting support for the rebels, and then a kind of a legitimization of what became a very profitable economic system based on the hyper-exploitation of these groups, forcible depopulation of people from resource-rich areas, uh, and so on. So the emergence, in a sense, of a kind of a war system rather than simply a war contest. And I did some research in uh, Sierra Leone as well on the war in the 1990s. And again, I think you know both rebels and government soldiers were in a way perversely gifted in what you might call losing hearts and minds by attacking civilians and uh, propelling them, in a sense, in terms of their sympathies into uh, the arms of the enemy. So how do you make sense of that uh, behavior? Um, in Sierra Leone, there was a lot of collusion as well between government forces and uh, rebel groups and a lot of civilians were reporting that they would coordinate their movements, they were coordinating diamond mining together, um, there were sales of arms between government forces and rebel forces, uh, there was this effectively a joint coup d'etat in 1997 between these government and rebel forces that had ostensibly been fighting each other for the previous six years. So a very odd war if you assume that enemies are implacably opposed to each other. But then if you imagine, for example, that you were a um, very frightened and perhaps under-trained, uh, under-equipped recruit to the Sierra Leonean army, perhaps even under-aged, you know, because many of them were children, and then you're sent to this incredibly resource-rich area very valuable resources on the international market to confront a very frightening and elusive enemy in the form of the RUF. You're asked for loyalty to a state which has provided very little to you in terms of education or justice or whatever. Uh, what exactly are you going to do in that situation? Would it be tempting perhaps to make some kind of accommodation 
with those people who you are, in a sense, supposed to hate, but who actually have a lot in common with you in terms of their background, their aspirations, their frustrations, and their fears, and so on. Um, so, sorry, this is uh, Sierra Leone. This is uh, people would talk about this phenomenon of cell game in Sierra Leone, the idea of a fixed football match, and this is supposed to illustrate uh, roughly. Um, the phenomenon of government officials in Sierra Leone being sent out in peacetime to suppress smuggling activities, a lot of them centering on the diamond trade, and then because of their lack of motivation and lack of pay, and because of the extremely valuable resources involved in smuggling, very often being systematically co-opted uh, into the very activities that they were supposed to be suppressing. So this is talking about peacetime at various points in time. And then in wartime, uh, in a sense, a kind of variation of that activity where you had underpaid and undermotivated government soldiers being sent into resource-rich areas to suppress, again, an illegal activity, in this case, rebellion, basing itself partly on smuggling of diamonds, and then cooperating with the phenomenon that they were supposed to be um, suppressing. So in a sense, you know, although we often see war as a kind of analogous to a sporting contest where people are trying to win, um, in this case, you know, you could compare it or you could compare the most resource-rich areas to a kind of a black hole or even a patch of quicksand where a whole variety of forces were being sent, first the rebels, the government soldiers, then the civil defense forces, then the West African peacekeepers, and actually being drawn into a kind of an involvement and sometimes collusion with the activities that they were supposed to be uh, suppressing. (coughs) And a lot of times in this kind of war, uh, armed confrontation between uh, armed groups is less common than we might uh, we might imagine. Uh, you get a kind of I think in, in Sierra Leone you had a kind of phenomenon where when these different fighting groups were accused by civilians of being self-interested and exploitative, uh, they often reacted very violently towards those accusations and towards the civilians. Uh, partly because there was a certain kind of shame that was being imposed on them to which they they reacted with extreme violence. And I won't go into it, but this is a very good book on on shame and violence. How long have I had? I've had five minutes. (laughs) No, No, I I thought I'd try that (laughs) on you. So this is uh, Bruce Grobelaar, allegedly. The evidence was inconclusive, but he was accused of throwing uh, football matches by basically uh, accepting accepting bribes. And this was the kind of analogy that people were using a lot in relation to the government troops in in Sierra Leone. This is a quote, government troops would sit down in security meetings and discuss where to attack, and usually when agreement was made, 
This message was sent across to the guys in the bush, the rebels, that you have to be ready. Most of the military were selling the game, abandoning weapons. They would exchange weapons for diamonds. And so on. I mean, I'll be very quick, but uh, you know, these are some other sources that discuss, in a sense, this phenomenon of cell game or cooperation between enemies in a number of other different uh, contexts. Um, so often, I think, where we have a kind of a demonized enemy, uh, and these enemies have often done a lot to deserve demonization, and I'm not diminishing that, uh, and it might be, you know, the RUF in Sierra Leone or the LRA, the intra Hamway, in terms of the DRC, the people responsible for the Rwandan genocide to a large extent, the FARC in Colombia, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and so on, uh, even the Viet Cong in Vietnam. There will probably be a coalition of people who claim to confront this evil but actually have very complicated agendas of their own, many of them extremely repressive and many of them extremely exploitative. And the more we become mesmerized, in a sense, as the international community by a particular embodiment of evil, then I think the more blinded we become to that set of abuses which, in a sense, flourishes under the cover of that collective uh, obsession. And in fact, if you publicly declare those evils often enough, you are in a way implicitly surrendering whatever leverage you may have against that abusive uh, counterinsurgency or that abusive coalition. And there are so many of examples of this, and I think it goes back to the Vietnam War uh, and no doubt uh, beyond. So we have to be keep a very clear mind, I think, of what the fault lines in a conflict really are. It's not necessarily what rebels and government soldiers are telling us. There are class fault lines, gender fault lines. There's a big fault line very often between all those people who are armed and all those people who are not armed. And we have to really uh, keep, uh, keep a very open mind as to what war actually is and the aims of a war, and I think that can feed into creative thinking about peace processes. If you, um, you're going back to this, what do these aims imply about the enemy? Winning, you probably want to sort of crush the enemy as if it was a, an egg. Um, economic gain, you might need the enemy. Suppressing dissent, you might need or even nurture the enemy again. Uh, and similarly with psychological aims. So is the enemy or the spo spoiler um, an egg to be crushed or is it in a sense a goose that lays the golden egg and something to be nurtured? And we don't have a lot of time to talk about uh, Syria. There's, I know there's a session on it later. But I think in terms of the political functions of war, you know, Syria is, a, is a, an arresting and disturbing example in the sense that the government, uh, through the vicious attacks on political protesters in 2011 in particular, uh, helped to turn a peaceful revolution in the making into an armed protest. And some people have argued that that armed protest was actually less politically threatening in the context of the Arab Spring, uh, and after all the regime is still with us. 
than a peaceful revolution. And of course, what the government did in addition to that was it uh, took a variety of actions which had the effect of strengthening some of the more abusive and extreme elements within the rebels uh, in Syria. And it's been somewhat successful in dividing and delegitimizing the rebellion through a variety of tactics, you know, releasing Islamist extremists from prison, um, granting selective uh, immunity to attack to different rebel groups, um, fomenting sectarianism and so on. It's been somewhat successful in producing enough doubt in the mind of the international community as to where the enemy really lies that it's been in a way quite uh, quite paralyzing. And of course the, you know, the global war on terror in a sense was an invitation to Assad and to people like Assad in other countries. If you can present your enemy uh, as a terrorist and if you can take action on the line of Hannah Arendt's action as propaganda that turns at least some of your enemies into terrorists, uh, then the international community is going to be uh, at least ambivalent about that, um, about that situation. So this is another reason why I think we have to understand, as it were, the hidden functions of, of war and not assume that a government is necessarily going to want to prevent a re rebellion or even to keep it as small as possible or even to uh, reduce the size of the more extreme elements within it. Um, one minute, end, okay. Um, so, let me go to, oh, this is interesting work by colleagues at LSE about Syria, Rimtakmani, Ali Ali, if you get a chance, war economies. Uh, I think we can look at illegal migration. If you look at Ruben Anderson's work, uh, and also the war on drugs as other examples where, you know, if you elevate something into a great evil, you actually legitimize a lot of abuse and a lot of rent-seeking and a lot of impunity-seeking by those people. And here one could think of governments in, in uh, Libya, uh, in Turkey, and so on, who claim to be participating in that collective struggle against, in this case, uh, illegal migration. Um, just a gratuitous picture of George Bush. Um, I mean, he, he obviously, 2003, he wanted to say the war was over in Iraq, effectively, and we know that it wasn't. So there's a political uh, definition of when war ends, which Martin Shaw has, I think, written about very interestingly. And, you know, a lot of work, Annette Idler's uh, excellent work about Colombia and the borderlands. Is it, uh, is it a case of peace or is it a case of war? It's not that easy to tell. If I ask you now, is Britain at war? And put your hands up if you think Britain is at war, just as an experiment. Uh, what would you say? Yeah, okay, probably about a, a quarter or a third. But it's interesting, we're not even sure if we're at war or not. It doesn't look like it on St. Giles, but we are sort of invited to believe that we're in this endless succession of wars against an endless succession of enemies. 
and uh, that you know there's an ambiguity. So I'll shut up. Yeah, yeah.